Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Claire Wilson. Welcome to the show. It's episode 193. We're recording this on May the 24th. Coming up this week, we're discussing the wisdom, or otherwise, of contacting aliens. And we're testing a non-alcoholic drink that mimics the feel-good effect of alcohol. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how that works. Um, (laughs) We're also hearing from the world's largest organism, which I'll give you a clue so you can guess what it is. It's bigger than 35 blue whales. And we've got an extraordinary story about an octopus dreaming. But we're going to start with uh, big news in the efforts to tackle obesity. As you'll know, of course, this is a huge public health crisis around the world. Claire, you've just come back from Dublin. Did you go to the stag's head for a pint? I'm sorry, I was too busy working very hard to do that. Of course, yeah, of course. (laughs) So at Dublin, there was a medical conference for weight loss doctors called the European Congress on Obesity. Um, So what was it like? Was it really buzzing? Well, there was a real change from previous times that I've been to this meeting. And it's all because of the new weight loss injections that are becoming available. So uh, we're seeing a lot about them in the news now, aren't we? Mm. And they're really, I mean, doctors are excited about them too, because they're really, for the first time, giving doctors the ability to prescribe a drug that that helps their patients uh, lose a significant amount of weight. So you've probably heard of, you know, Elon Musk has said it helped him slim down and it's rumoured to be all the rage among Hollywood actors. So what is the drug then? So it's actually a group of medicines that are given by injections that can be self-administered. Okay, so it's not just sort of someone's not just cornered the market on one brand of drug. It's a a variety of different kinds, right? Exactly. But they all work by mimicking gut hormones that are normally released when we eat to tell the brain that we are full. So at the conference, a lot of the talks were about this new class of medicines and, frankly, how great the results are. Um, Yeah, until now, weight loss medicines typically might enable people to lose about 5% of their original body weight. Now, the new gut hormone mimics can lead to weight loss of about 15%. Wow. Um, Yeah, so a big difference. So, And there were also some results presented for a new version, which mimics two different gut hormones at once. And this has led to 20% weight loss. 20% of total weight, of your total weight? Yeah, of, of your original body weight, yes. Wow. I mean, obviously, you'd have to, you have to be obese to, to have this. I mean, you wouldn't be a... I mean, if a Hollywood actor's taking it who's not generally obese, 
it's a bit of an off-label use, isn't it? That Yes, that would be classed as off-label. But I mean, yeah. this is nothing yeah. new. Obesity uh, drugs, weight loss drugs have always been used off-label and illegally, yeah. really. But at the conference that I was at, it was doctors who were caring for people who are really, really heavy. You know, so this is the more the more medical use of it, which is, you know, really helping save people from serious health problems and um, shortened lifespan. And so many doctors were saying to me, we're in a new era now. So that's really interesting as a as a medical journalist. It feels like, thank God for that, really, because, you know, we've been writing about the potential of these kind of mimics, hormonal mimics for years now in New Scientist. I, I just want to sort of raise a worry, though, because... You know, is it not a bit worrying that we're having to resort to, you know, a medical, a drug approach for this problem? Because, you know, of course, obesity is a, this massive problem and the reasons are complex. We hear about this, you know, the obesogenic environment, which refers to the fact that, you know, we all sit around at desks all day. We're less physically active as a result. And and also we, we have a, a less healthy diet. So I wonder, should we not tackle those things rather than just saying oh throw in the towel uh let's all eat unhealthily and just inject ourselves with drugs to solve the problem well your your proposed fix sounds great the problem Mm. is we've been trying that for literally decades (laughs) decades since the 1980s when we first saw obesity rates start to climb in the u.s and quickly followed in other countries there have been loads of schemes in different countries where they try things like education in schools helping families encouraging more cycling etc correct me if i'm wrong but i don't know of a single such scheme that has worked at bringing down population obesity rates right okay, okay. so we've got to try something new and then also just to cor- correct you there so for for people who take these weight loss drugs, they actually do still need to change their their lifestyles so that they and change their eating habits so they consume fewer calories. Right. It's that if they try and do that while taking the drugs, that reduces their hunger, which is inevitably caused by going on a low calorie diet normally, and that's so often what sabotages people's best intentions. Oh, I see. So, yeah. yeah, but. You know, it almost sounds, Rowan, a bit like you're judging people for not being able to do it just through sheer willpower alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, no, uh, I think that I would say it's like the climate crisis, actually. You know, individuals have been blamed for it when really it's the fault of, of big oil corporations that have shifted mm-hmm. the blame onto the individuals. And I think, you know, it's similar here that you know, I wouldn't blame an individual, but because our society is flooded with ultra processed food, junk food, you know. Uh huh. So OK, I, but, but how can we fix that? You know, can we turn the no, clock not, back 50 years and change our food systems? I'm not sure that we can. Well, I, I, I was just raising a worry about, you know, yeah. just adding another drug to all the other things we have to do to just get through the 21st <laughs> century, you know. And you have to like, you know, you have to take them indefinitely then, I suppose. Well, you? yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, that that's a good point. Mm. It does seem that once you start taking them, if you stop, the weight goes back on. So, you know, I don't know whether you would fancy injecting yourself once a week for the rest of your life. Probably lots of people wouldn't, but lots of people would if it helps mm. them lose a significant amount of weight and improve their health and reduce their risk of you know, heart attacks and helps them move around more because doctors point out that this actually facilitates people getting more exercise, which is what they're, they've always been told to do, right? It's very yeah. hard to take 
exercise if you're very, very heavy. And there are many other conditions that require lifelong medication. And I just wonder, are we perhaps thinking about obesity a bit differently to other medical conditions because of the stigma around being overweight? Yeah, very much so. I think there is a still a massive stigma around it. So that's mm. uh, that's a really good point. Brilliant. Thanks, Claire. Um, and you also wrote an article about those medicines earlier in the month, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And now it's time for Life Form of the Week and something a bit different this week, Rowan. Yeah, this is the one that I was trailing at the beginning of the show. It's uh, So it's a 106-acre forest in Utah, called the Pando Aspen Grove. And that is my life form of the week. And if you're about to say, I can't have a forest of, and it's got 47,000 stems in the forest. If you're about to say, I can't have that as a life form, then I will reply that it's actually a single organism. And all of the 47,000 stems are genetically identical and connected at the root. Hang on. So do you mean, is that 47,000 trees? That yeah. are all the same plant. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. 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 Okay. So is that like how a strawberry plant yeah. grows by yeah. making clones of itself? Yeah, yeah it is. Um, so aspen are uh, clonal. They often grow like this, but not never in such a huge way. And I guess the other the difference with strawberries is they send out these runners. Uh, a clone grows on a runner, but then the runner sort of withers away and you get a, a new individual uh-huh. plant. But yeah, as I say, the shoots here, the new trunks of, or stems, they call them, are, are coming underground and the whole tree remains connected and it makes it the world's largest organism by dry weight. So I said 35 blue whales, that's 6 million, <laughs> 6 million kilograms, 6,000 tons or a thousand elephants. Oh, so that's um, the, the traditional newspaper units of measurement there. Thanks yeah, for absolutely. getting that in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's also been regenerating for thousands of years making it one of the oldest organisms on earth as well wow so listen to this this is the sound of a thunderstorm over the pando grove recorded using hydrophones attached to the roots of this giant organism it's hard to believe but that's that's from recording on the hydrophones underground Yeah, it sounds like it's under the sea almost. Yeah, yeah. So that's been put together by sound artist Jeff Rice. Thanks to him for letting us use that clip. And can we say, I mean, is that the sound that the roots hear? Well, I mean, yeah, we don't know for sure, of course. Jeff says it's like the idea of the tin can telephone, which, you know, for anyone who's young, you know, I don't know what people know what a tin can telephone is anymore but it's like when you have two tin cans connected by string (laughs) and you talk down them and before cell phones were invented uh, anyone young listening that's what we (laughs) that's how we used to talk to our friends or yogurt pots you could also do it with yogurt pots (laughs) except here the cans are are forty-seven thousand trees connected by this root system incredibly complex root system so the whole idea of the audio there is the try to get this organism some greater attention i would love to visit this place actually now and i spoke with paul rogers who's the director of the western aspen alliance he works on pando this tree um, he's based at utah state university and he just published a paper on it which unfortunately shows that the thing is in trouble because it's being grazed oh, no. it's being overgrazed by um, cattle and by mule mule deer 
um, that are sort of wandering into the forest and, and stopping uh, the tree from sending up new stems or chewing them before they grow. Oh, no. So the world's largest organism is in peril and the old, one of the oldest too, and, and yeah. it's, it's in danger. Yeah, Paul says we should fence it off or or, do, or cull the deer to try to lessen the impact of the of the browsing and try and you know maintain this extraordinary organism. Okay, it's time for a break and some messages. We're busy putting together the amazing program for New Scientist Live. That's our flagship online and in person event in London in October. Yes, and it's a few months away, so now you can get your super early bird tickets for the talks on the Saturday. Highlights include physicist Luciano Rezzola on the secrets of gravity and black holes and oceanographer Helen Chersky on the science of the oceans. Go to newscientist.com slash nslpod to get some more information on that and your early bird tickets. We're back. And Michael, you've written an extraordinary story about octopuses having nightmares. Please tell us <laughs> how we know that they're having nightmares. Yes, well, so this story, it's all about Costello, the octopus. So he was caught off Florida in 2021. At the time he was caught, he had a missing tentacle. Uh, so that was presumably bitten off by a predator. He was then sold to this team at the Rockefeller University who studied octopus cognition. And they're the ones who named him Costello. <laughs> Were they fans of Elvis Costello? Well, apparently he's actually named after one of the aliens in the film Arrival. Uh-huh. So if you remember, the aliens in that film were a bit like cephalopods. And well, apparently, they, I think they were heptapods, actually. That, but but mm-hmm. yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cephalopod-like. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so Costello was, uh, he, he, he adapted to captivity very quickly and he would come forward and greet the researchers when they approached the aquarium. And he also started sleeping out in the open rather than in a den as octopuses would do in the wild. Mm. Oh, so, that, so they could see him sleeping then? Yeah, and why that's important. So the uh, team had set up these security cameras to monitor his aquarium 24 hours a day. I don't know. One of the, one morning, a researcher went into the room and he found that the water was a bit cloudy and Costello was looking really agitated. And so he looked back at all the footage to see what had happened. And what he saw was that Costello had been sleeping quietly on the side of the aquarium just normally. And he then entered this sort of sleep stage where octopus's skin actually changes colour and their skin texture changes as, as well. Mm, and isn't that's already thought to be a sign of dreaming, isn't it? Yeah, we, we don't know that for sure yet, but there was a recent study that showed that this sleep stage is a lot in similarity with our rapid eye movement sleep stage, which, of course, is when we dream. So anyway, Costello was in this stage and then suddenly started thrashing around. He, he sort of moved around a bit, tried to make himself look bigger, and then he squirted out this big cloud of ink. These, of course, are all anti-predator responses, but there's no reason why he'll be responding to predators at that particular moment. That You know, he was the only one in the aquarium there was no one in the room at the time. So from that, we can conclude he was having a nightmare maybe about being attacked by a predator that he needed to squirt in cat. Well, conclude is too strong a word. So the researchers, uh, the main researchers called Marcelo Magnesco, he's, he's been very cautious about that. So he's just saying this is one possible explanation for this behaviour. Mm-hmm. And this did make them look back through all the footage they had, and they did find several similar incidents. But it's still, it's just one octopus. And so what Magnesco is saying is, let's look out for this in, in other animals too and see if this is something that happens more widely. Yeah, it's kind of... Amazing! It hasn't been reported before in other animals, hasn't it? Well, it has. We have had dreaming in other animals, I think, 
Oh, my, I, my dog used to woof in her yeah. sleep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I think we've, we've all seen our, our, you know, pet animals. Dream, yeah. But what, what Magnesco is saying with octopuses, people don't usually monitor them 24 hours around the clock like mm. he did. They usually only film them when they do an experiment, whereas here, yeah. there's sort of surveillance set up to monitor them 24 hours. Well, so let's, uh, let, you know, let's assume they are, that's what they're doing. They are dreaming. Um, That's actually quite scary, isn't it? You could imagine octopuses, and there's bloody millions of them all having horrible nightmares about being attacked all over the world. Yes, it's a rather sad thought, isn't it? Um, But Magnesco was saying to me that if you accept that octopuses do dream, then it's really a no-brainer to say that they're going to have nightmares too. I mean, life in the wild is really tough Mm. uh, for wild animals. And of course, Costello in particular had good reason to be afraid of predators because he had lost a tentacle previously. This reminds me, we've got um, an interview with the animal rights ethicist Peter Singer coming up in a week or so um, on the podcast and in the magazine. And and when you think of animal welfare, and Peter Singer was one of the people who really made us think hard about that, we normally think of captive animals. But as you say, wild animals have you know really hard lives as well. It makes you think about that. Now, as we said at the start, we're joined this week by comment and culture editor Alison Flood. Because, well, basically, Alison, there's loads of cool things going on in your world, aren't there? Um, Should we start with uh, the small matter of defining space-time? Sure. Um, I mean, that's not something I can do, but I will direct you to our columnist this week, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. Chanda is a professor of physics and astronomy at the University of New Hampshire, where her research focuses on cosmology, neutron stars and particles beyond the standard mode. (laughs) Yes, just those small matters. Um, And this week she's tackling space-time. Well, I'm most definitely not a theoretical physicist. And what I love about her columns is that she gives us some insight into what she does. This time, she's talking about why even she quails before the prospect of having to define space-time to questioners and about being asked what there was before the beginning of the universe, even though it's basically her job. <sighs> so she admits that combining space and time into one inseparable entity is so outside the realm of everyday life that for most people, and I'm definitely one of them, this will feel unintuitive. And she leaves us at the end of the column, understanding a little bit more about the cosmos. Well, uh, that's that's all that we can ask for, isn't it? After uh, reading New Scientist or listening to the podcast that uh, we leave people understanding a little more about the cosmos. All right, there's another piece you've got this week about communicating with aliens. What's that about? Yeah, so this is looking at the universe from another perspective. It's by Chris Impey, who's author of a new book called Worlds Without End. And he's also a professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona. Chris is thinking about something the late Stephen Hawking had some strong thoughts on. If there are intelligent aliens out there, should we be communicating with them? Yeah. Um, so should we? Well, Hawking thought definitely not. Chris <laughs> is less prescriptive. He feels that, and I'm quoting, the risk is abstract when the message will take millennia to be received anyway. Mm. And he also yeah. thinks we have more proximate and existential threats than an evil alien empire. But what yeah. I really found thought provoking was his question about who should speak for Earth. He talks about how an international team of astronomers plans to use the world's largest radio telescope in China to beam a message towards stars that are 10,000 to 20,000 light years away. Well, that's really, really far away, isn't it? Um, why, would we, why do we care about what's going on that far away? 
Well, you'd have to read Chris's piece, but <laughs> he does wonder if these are really the people we want to speak for us and what we might want them to say. There is no international consultation about what to send. No international rules govern METI, which stands for Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So decisions are made by a small group of scientists. Impey feels this is probably unwise, but he does add that if we did consult on it, it will be rather hard to reach consensus. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine it would be. <laughs> I actually read a fantastic novel recently which touches on these big thoughts, In Ascension by Martin McInnes. I really recommend it. Yeah, I mean, it's a great book, isn't it? It really stayed with me. And um, and actually, after I read that, um, it led me to his previous novel, Infinite Ground, uh, which is also really worth reading. Uh, worth checking him out if you haven't already. Martin McInnes, that is. Excellent. I'll have to try that one. I haven't read mm. that yet. Which leads us nicely to the launch of our book club. Hmm. New Scientist is launching a book club where we'll be reading and discussing the very best science and science fiction books. We're kicking off with a science fiction novel, The Ferryman by Justin Cronin, who you might have heard of as the author of the excellent post-apocalyptic vampire novel, The Passage. The Ferryman, though, is very different. It's set on the island of Prospera, an apparent utopia where citizens live a charmed life until they grow too old, whereupon they're sent to the neighbouring island known as the nursery for a reboot. But when Proctor, the ferryman who takes them there, is given a cryptic message, the world is not the world, he begins to realise everything is not what it seems. You can sign up at newscientist.com forward slash book club, where we'll also be bringing you extracts from our chosen titles and insights into our author's own favourite reads and inspirations. You can share your thoughts with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and watch out for our upcoming video interview with Justin, where we'll be asking him all our most burning questions about the ferryman. You can send your questions for Justin too to bookclub at newscientist.com. That's brilliant. Thanks, Alison. We'll put those links in the show notes and the links to those stories you mentioned from Chanda and from Chris. And incidentally, talking about aliens, there's another fun story that I'll put a link to. This is from SETI scientists, so the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, not messaging. And they're they're basically running a fire drill for alien contact. And what they've done is beamed an encoded message from a Mars orbiter. The message has has been picked up by telescopes and uh, radio telescopes here. It's been picked up by the public now, and then they can help decode the message so it's as if we've really been contacted by aliens. Now, we started the show talking about food and ways to stop ourselves from eating too much food. So Mm -hmm. let's finish by looking at a new approach to tackling problem drinking. Our assistant news editor and food columnist, Sam Wong, has been out sampling a drink that mimics the effects of alcohol without actually containing any alcohol. So he sent in this report. So I've just been trying a series of delicious cocktails made from Sentia Spirits, which are drinks designed to give you some of the enjoyable aspects of drinking alcohol, but uh, hopefully in a safer way. David Oren is with me. He co-founded Gabba Labs, the company that makes these drinks, uh, with David Nutt at Imperial College London. So David, how do these drinks work? What's different about them? Hello, Sam, and, and thanks for your interest. So Sentia Gabba Spirits are our proof of concept for an alternative to alcohol. We're developing a range of products uh, which will give consumers uh, an alternative to ethanol, the traditional alcohol that we know and love, uh, but which also causes so much damage. And this particular drink that you're drinking is called Sentia Red, which is made entirely from plants which are in the food chain and which together in combination through the way that we put the drink together, activate 
your GABA system, which is the same system that alcohol uh, accesses, to give you that sense of relaxation and conviviality and social lubrication that uh, adult social drinkers want. And what exactly is GABA? So GABA stands for gamma amino butyric acid, and it's the protein which forms the, the neuroreceptor that uh, modulates your energy, modulates uh, your glutamate, enables you to reflect and, and to listen to other people and to slow down. It's like the braking system on a high-speed car. Now, cars are wonderful because they help you to go forward, but if that's all they did, you'd be in trouble. You need brakes, and that's what GABA does. It allows us to slow down and just be aware of what's happening around us and, and connect with other people. For social beings, which we are, uh, it's an essential part of our ability to form community and to work together to relate to each other and to form relationships. So uh, alcohol um, activates this GABA system, but it also has all these um, effects that we don't like, like you know, hangovers, becoming clumsy, and and those are coming from effects on other brain systems. Is that right? Yes. Alcohol initially touches the, the GABA system and, and gives you that sense of social lubrication that we want. But it also goes on to activate pretty much every other neuroreceptor, including glutamate, eventually overwhelming. And, and it actually tends to depress or suppress glutamate. And uh, at the same time, it also, it's almost like you're, you're reducing the energy source within the body and uh, eventually the body becomes dysfunctional. At the same time, it activates dopamine and endorphins, which leads you to a, a loss of judgment so that you actually lose sight of how much you've drunk. So the, the good intentions that you had at the beginning to have a single glass of wine can be lost. And, and, and this is one reason why uh, sometimes people tend to abuse alcohol. So if I was to drink 10 of these, would that be safe? Or, or is there a, a point where drinking the sentia spirits and, and activating GABA, can you can overload that system as well? Well, we, we do recommend a daily maximum. But we have designed into the product uh, something that we call a flat curve. So we've, the specification of the product is that you should be able to get that two-drink sense of relaxation, but not continue to, to be affected in the same way that alcohol would. So alcohol continues until eventually become dysfunctional and non-functional, whereas we've attempted to design into the product a flat curve, meaning you get to a ceiling, and then we've designed it uh, to flatten out. And that, that curve works slightly differently with different people, so I can't predict exactly how it might affect you, but that, that effect is there, and most people will experience that ceiling. So if you drink more, it may, may last longer, but it shouldn't take you further uh, above a certain level of, of that effect. So what exactly is in this product? You said it's all made from plants. Yes. Santia Gabba spirits are made of plants. In, in the Santia Red, which you're drinking now, there's over a dozen, and they're selected for a number of different purposes. Some are chosen because they're highly GABAergic, meaning they have a high impact on your GABA system. Others have a lower GABA impact, but they help in absorption. And then there are plants that we use for, for color and for flavoring to give a balanced liquid that people can enjoy. So I know that David Nutt and you have been working on um, a synthetic alcohol substitute as well, which uh, requires more of a, has to go through a regulatory process, which this drink doesn't because it's, it's plant-based. So what's the difference? What, what will that molecule do when you are able to bring it to market? Well, David Nutt has spent a lifetime looking at the mechanism of alcohol, how alcohol actually works and, and where it works and what are the GABA receptors and wh which GABA receptors in particular. So Alcarel, and we call this product Alcarel. It's an ingredient which we will license to the drinks industry 
for the drinks industry to create a new generation of, of beverages, which we think are going to revolutionize social drinking and take us in a much healthier direction. So Alcarel is the result of many years of, of working on understanding using fMRI and various other techniques uh, to understand where and how to act on, on the GABA system that we want. GABA is complex. It operates at multiple levels. And we've identified the sub-level receptor components that we want to be able to activate in unison to create that two-drink effect. And so it's um, uh, we've developed a, a range of of ingredients, a range of compounds, which create that effect in slightly different ways. We've selected the lead candidate, and that lead candidate is now ready to go into the, the safety testing process, which is mandatory for launching into a market. And we're looking first to launch into the US under the FDA's uh, GRASS program. GRASS stands for Generally Recognized as Safe. So we want approval for our ingredient so that the industry can then license the drinks or produce a new range of drinks under license. Great. Well, I've really enjoyed uh, trying these drinks and, and I do feel uh, somewhat relaxed now. Um, so thanks very much for that. And if um, people want to find out more and to try these drinks for themselves, you're, you've got an event coming up where they can do that. Is that right? Um, we're always organising events. And uh, yes, there, we are going to be in Kensington with uh, Imperial College. Uh, the great exhibition festival, Exhibition Road Festival is on the 17th and 18th of June in South Kensington. So would you try that, Rowan? Yeah, I'll try anything. Um, I, <laughs> I've asked Sam if he can bring some in, so maybe we can all try it. Um, oh, in I'll the, try it. In the office. Okay. <laughs> so thanks to co-host Claire Wilson and to our guests, Michael LePage, Sam Wong and Alison Flood. I'm Rowan Hooper and thanks for listening to New Scientist Podcasts. Do subscribe to our show, check out our archive. It's all free and we'll see you next week. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.